Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Oatari Dorgan. And with me, as always, is a man whose life's dream is to teach children how to beat the shit out of each other. <laughs> I am the Adam Glass. And... Yes. I, 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 I love the idea. It's like, well, I'm good with kids, but I only have this one skill. I'm going to use right. that skill with kids. It's like it's an arc from a lot of like like these like inspirational movies. And it's like, but it's always like, well, I'm a boxer, so I'll teach the children to beat each other up, or like I'm a, yeah. like ah, I used to be a, I used to be an army ser- sergeant. I'll teach children to murder each other. So it's like, <laughs> it's never well, benign. I mean, it's never it's never something that I think like, well, this is a thing that kids should learn. I will say what I one thing I really love about the end of that one is that. Uh, Mersh getting a new boxer under his authority is shown as a negative, right? right? Um, but but our man teaching a child how to box, right? It's really some, is, some really is serious not just the earlier here. version of that same issue, right, right? Well, yeah, it's a, it's that classic thing though, right? Like you see it in a lot of movies where it's like boxing as like a youth rehabilitation or like education right, thing, right. and I've never fully. Lots of TV shows and movies present it, and it's always been one that's been really, like, scary to me. Because it's like, well, it's not like teaching a kid, like, a martial artist art where they're like, well, we're never actually going to engage in what one would call, like, combat. Like, the goal of this is to never, anybody's, nobody's, nobody, when you teach children, like, karate or something like that, your goal is to not have them hurt each other. Like, you know, in the end, it's like, oh, we're going to do this in a way where nobody gets hurt. It's like boxing. It's like, well, eventually, I'm going to have you beat the shit out of you. Okay? Yeah. Because those are the rules of boxing. That's how this game box, works. You're going box, to eventually beat yeah, each other up. Boxing is over. <laughs> no. Well, you can't have an exhibition boxing match where, where the point isn't to knock someone Right, out, where you like score points or whatever, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But in any case, uh, <laughs> ending ending with with uh, with the mountain teaching some rando kid on the train. <laughs> yeah, just that some, like, just, some like seven-year-old yeah, how to make a like, proper fist. Mom's like... like on board i love it it's it's so good i it is not inaccurate let's be very clear here yeah it is totally within the frame of the way the united states functions as a society and yet it is it is hilarious and terrifying Pat, before we get into our movie this week, I do want to talk about our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash lost in criteria. Over there for just a dollar a month, you can help keep us going and get access to some bonus content. Oh, yeah. One episode over there every month. It is always a non-criterion film, and our supporters get to vote on what movie we're going to watch. We've been on an interesting string. Our, our January movie this time was... The Salt of the Earth, which is a fantastic movie. We're celebrating labor victories uh, of the last year and ended up watching one of the best labor movies ever made, possibly. Mm. I, I, I'll say the best labor movie ever it's made. It's the best one I've ever uh, seen. Like, Yeah, just very, very good. Uh, and then February, we made a list based on the documentaries uh, were added to the National Film Registry for 2021. That list came out in December, and we ended up watching The Murder of Fred Hampton from 1972, which is also fantastic. Yes. 
documentary and very, or 1971 rather, but in any case, a uh, fantastic movie and very happy to have had the opportunity to watch that as well. Uh, other than that, we watch, you know, a pretty good mix of films, some that should be in the Criterion Collection and really Salt of the Earth probably should be in the Criterion Collection. It's, it's an important movie, I think, <laughs> like even by Criterion standards, which are impossible to determine. Right. But, uh, but we've watched other movies that, uh, should be in the Criterion Collection, one that ended up being in the Criterion Collection. We've watched other movies that are really good movies. Dog Day Afternoon, fantastic yeah, film. That's one of the and very early movies. ones and still yeah. one of my favorites. Yeah, right. And also just really not so great movies like Ready Player One. Uh, it's fine. It's not. It's fine. We've it's definitely seen even, worse. Not, we've definitely seen the yeah. worst movie. We've seen a couple of the worst movies I've ever seen we've, in my entire we've life. We've seen some really terrible movies in the bonus episodes too. Uh but yeah, Ready Player One was. It's was gar- just I mean, Ready Player One is sort so of mediocre. Pop gar- garbage is really what, is what it was. It yeah, yeah, yeah. And but yeah, we talk about a wide variety of films over there. If you if you're not getting that feeling yet, and of course we talk about a wide variety of movies with the regular Criterion Collection too. Uh, but it's nice to talk about something that we're not forced to talk about, I guess, in a way. Um, but also another fun thing is that supporters can suggest lists or suggest movies for us to watch at the uh, on the Patreon. And if they suggest one, we usually try to get that supporter onto the episode, if at all possible. So we end up talking to people about some of their favorite movies, and those are always fun conversations to have. So I really love doing that. But that's all the $1 mark, and we are very grateful for those $1 supporters. For a little above that, though... Uh, at five dollars, well, that's the level you get thanked on air. Oh yeah, it is. Our five dollar supporters help us keep going a little bit stronger than those one dollar supporters. But you know what? Five one dollar supporters, one five dollar supporter—it's all a wash in the end, right? Uh, we're grateful for all of them, but nonetheless, our five dollar supporters do get thanked on air. So thank you so much to our current five dollar supporters: Chris Otto, Stephen Goldmeyer, and Eric Coronado. A little above that, at ten dollars and above. It's our highest tier. We do something pretty special. Yeah, it is. I know there's only three tiers, but we kind of pull out all the stops here. Our $10 and above supporters every month get a piece of art made by Pat. He makes it based on one of the movies we watched recently. I get that printed up on a postcard and write a little personalized note, mail those off every month. Uh, and we also thank those folks on air. Thank you so much to our current $10 and above supporters, Nina Bajnak, Michael McGrath, Jason Westhaver, Patrick Yako, and Adam Speakerman. Yes, thank you very much. If you want to see those postcards, you can head over to redbubble.com, search for Lost and Criterion there, and you can check out all of the past postcards, well, most of the past postcards. Yeah, and, 90%. Uh, yeah, 99, really. Um there were a couple that Redbubble won't let us. Well, sell, weirdly enough, Redbubble does a bad. Redbubble's SEO system is really shitty. So even when you search yeah, for our good. stuff on there, it doesn't surface all of our stuff. It surfaces a small percentage of our stuff. Right, right. You got to click through to the through the store and see the whole thing. Uh, anyway, you can see all of those old postcards, and you can buy them if you like uh, as postcards, as greeting cards. If you need to write a longer message. Uh, as stickers, some of them, and as pins for when the art really works for a pin. You know, there's some where I just look at it and I think I got to put that on a pin 
and so I do. It. I think you've made so like far really good choices. No, I, yeah, but they're really yeah. good ones. The Five Goes West one, or not Five Goes West. Um, shoot, with American Tale, an American Tale. Yeah, yeah, the one that works real well. All, all the pin yeah, ones was, are very good. The American Tale, by the way, is is not art done by no, Pat. It it's is. Done I, by I, I, I <laughs> it stole it. Done it's by Pat's children. I I, I force yeah. my children to labor for me. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, uncompensated, the by the way. Uh, if you buy, if you buy one of those pins with the child's art that on is it, child I'm labor. not sending that child money. Yeah, it's, uh, so you know, it's just, that is child slave labor. Yeah, it's it's, so, it's unfortunate, uh, but it's the reality we live in. And much like all other companies, we're not going to do anything to fix it. Uh, to be perfectly honest, I would love to be able to send your children. <laughs> right, right. Just get mail, like mail <laughs> my son. Just, like, we have just cents. constantly had so much trouble trying to yes, trying to get money it. between the two of us. Uh, and you know, all the way around the world, it is surprisingly difficult when you aren't a major corporation. It absolutely is, or it's, it's or almost just like they on cash. purpose try to make it uh, uh, extremely difficult. Um, yeah, well, I was gonna say, yeah, no, it, it, I don't know why they make it so difficult, but it is. But yeah, in any case, uh, like I said, redbubble.com, search for Lost Criterion if you want to see that art, or you can support us more directly at Patreon.com/slash Lost in Criterion. Thank you, everyone who supports us, and thank you, everyone. Just listening. Pat, this week we are continuing with our second episode of the Golden Age of Television. Last week we will f- <laughs> last week we will have hopefully Yeah, let's just guess. level with we're the actually, audience that we are yeah, doing these out We're recording of this out of sequence because good uh, for our yeah, for the Golden Age of Television episode we we hoped to have had a special guest uh and because of that uh scheduling was a little more difficult than we had hoped and we got to keep uh keep recording the rest of these episodes before we've actually recorded episode one so uh whether or not we have the special guests you've got all the background material from last week i'm sure i'm going to remember to have done that so uh bill and ted (laughs) bill and ted just all we have to do is be the winner uh and then we're the winners that's just have to decide to do it uh, so last week we talked about Marty, Patterns, and No Time for Sergeants, which are disc one of the Golden Age of Television box set. The Golden Age of Television was a PBS series uh, from the early 80s that were re-airing uh, teleplays from various uh, playhouse television shows from the 50s which were weekly live events because there was no tape at the time uh, with teleplays. Uh, In case you didn't listen to the first one, just some quick background material on these teleplays. These are pulling from a number of different shows. Uh, Two of ours tonight come from U.S. Steel Hour, (laughs) which delightful. Uh, Most of these were direct sponsorship deals. Uh, the networks weren't really even controlling content. The sponsorships were determining what was being done. They had started in the early 50s, I believe, and basically only had been doing public domain work. So after about five years, someone decided that they should start doing originals. And started hiring young playwrights. I mean, it's it's the it's the Disney phenomenon, right? Like, oh shit, we ran right, out of public right, domain right. stuff. We're gonna have to start paying somebody <laughs> yeah. to like actually come up with right, an idea. Right, 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 right. Uh, tonight we have Requiem for a Heavyweight, which is written by Rod Serling, one of three in the set that are written by Rod Serling. Uh, we'll have one per week. 
We have Bang the Drum Slowly, uh, adapted by Arnold Schulman from the Mark Harris novel. And we have A Wind from the South, an original work written by James Costigan, who uh, wrote a lot uh, of... Uh, I think he had like six Emmys for teleplays through the, through the late 50s. Interestingly enough, A Wind from the South does not even make his Wikipedia page. I mean, not I'm not on there. going to lie yeah. when I say I'm not. Uh, you know, it's not that yeah. surprising. He did a lot. Yeah. Um, it's, I suppose it's kind of an also ran among. I would, among uh, probably. Uh, For somebody like that, yes, probably. Yeah. Um, I suppose that, that the five years would have started in the late 40s because uh, A Wind from the South is actually 1953. It's a pretty, uh, pretty early for the three we have this week. Um, the other two come from 56. Uh, I guess I, I mentioned Rod Serling as if everyone just knows who Rod Serling is, and, and maybe you do. I feel and like you should, do, but Rod, but... yeah, Rod Serling not only wrote three of the teleplays that we'll be watching for this, but is the creator and and pre- presenter uh, and uh, showrunner, as if that was a term that existed at the time of uh, the original Twilight Zone, uh, and he went to college at Ohio State University. Uh, he's a, he's a Columbus guy. I used to hang out, uh, at a, uh, diner all night restaurant. Uh, they weren't quite open 24 hours when I was there, but they were open very late. Kitchen didn't close till after one, uh, called the Dube, the Blue Danube and Rod Serling hung out there when he was in school. Uh, and generally we sat in the same booth or at least the booth in the same position of the building. From what I know. Right, it's probably not uh, no. the same yeah. actual booth. <laughs> I don't know. It could have been the I same mean, booth. Maybe. They weren't. <laughs> but sadly, the uh, the dube has closed as of a few years ago, and uh, looks like it might finally be getting probably turned into a condominium. <laughs> probably a condo or a condado, which is a. You just said a word. I think you made up just now. <laughs> It would be too much to explain to you what condado but is. But also, you kind of have to because you just said a word, and now I can't. It is. I'm, I tell you that I'm just going to look it up on the internet while you talk. It is, it is a taco restaurant, and there is a long, long, bitter history between the two white guys who started condado in Cleveland a few years okay, ago. Okay, so it is not a, like some sort of weird like portmanteau of condo and something else no no okay. no no condado i, I assumed is, it was uh, like i was like okay I, in my brain i was like okay i'm going to try to figure out what part what word condo is being combined with to produce this new word there's some maybe weird version of a condo uh it's it's too short to be a condo to be honest it's not a big enough building but it's gonna be turned into well, something weird i'm sure no they'll do the thing that they've they've really been doing which which actually we do need more of but i wish were happening in different ways uh, where they will rebuild it, and there'll be a condado on the first floor, and then and there'll then just be some stuff condos. Above, yeah. Way too expensive condos on the on the rest. The Taco Bell on campus, the Wendy's on campus, uh, were all torn down and then built as apartment buildings with that at the bottom. The at Wendy's the first and the Taco floor. Bell yeah. on the first floor. The White Castle in the Short North, the same thing happened to. I mean, uh, like honestly, like here's the thing: it's like. <laughs> This is the best America can do for mixed zoning is like a single kind of shitty restaurant on the first floor of a of an expensive right, right. condo building. It's a, like just fucking throw everything in there, man. Like whatever, it doesn't yeah. matter. 
It's like first floor retail on campus has all national brands, and the apartments above them are all unaffordable. Right. Uh, it's very it's really bad. sad. Um, it's really yeah. really sad. They they tore down Bernie's and built in a mixed use apartment building whose entire first floor is a Target. Oh God. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's bad. It's all bad. <laughs> Bernie's was a delightful crust punk. Uh, venue that also sold bagels uh, <laughs> i mean which Bernie's... is what every city should actually be right it's just right, like right. here's some ridiculous shit like it's good like you'll enjoy it like the it would just be weird the house mics at bernie's smelled like vomit uh of course uh and yeah it was i hope I hope those weird crust punks are haunting the target. <laughs> God, uh, God, I actually I hope say. that that is actually true because <laughs> just like you're like shopping like the frozen food aisle, and there's just like, yeah, oh man, that'd be amazing. Yeah. Uh, anyway, back to our place tonight. <laughs> um, no more talking about uh, about how Columbus. Bad, bad Colum- well, all of the Midwest Columbus is actually just all of the ba- yeah, yeah. Okay, so. Um, just a reminder, if you haven't listened to the early episode, the ground rules of these uh, teleplays is that they were live broadcasts. Uh, so when they originally aired, they weren't meant to be re-aired. Um, in fact, the quality of how they had to record these, which was by pointing a movie camera at the monitors, uh, which is also how they were, were broadcast on the West Coast, is my understanding. Yes. Uh was so bad that they they had no the networks had no interest in re reissuing them re rebroadcasting them. Uh, plus, it was detrimental to their business model. They were making these one off events so that affiliates had to affiliate with them in order to get that content. Right? Uh, it wasn't something that they could buy after afterward, and you know, it wasn't some film or some syndicate. Uh, so, in any case, PBS, as I said, released these eight together for a show in 1980. Uh, and then the next time they were publicly available was when Criterion put out these DVDs. So, uh, these works themselves, when Criterion put out this DVD, the most anyone could have seen them was twice. Right, and that person uh, would be a very rare <laughs> figure right, indeed right, right. right? Pretty, like, i mean that's like pretty rare person yeah that yeah. it's kind of wild to think about actually yeah um now a good number of these including two of ours tonight were adapted into uh feature films uh marty from last week was uh i don't know which others from the other weeks but uh as far as tonight bang the drum slowly and uh, Requiem for a Heavyweight were both adapted. Um, so, you know, the stories got out, <laughs> I suppose. But the originals that they were based off of, no one could have ever seen. Um, so, yeah, it's really, as a time capsule of an era of television, uh, even more so than, you know, this is stuff, obviously, you can... You can get on YouTube and watch any of these, right? Right. You know, uh, presumably. Uh, I didn't actually check, but <laughs> it would surprise me if you couldn't. Um, but, you know, prior prior to the internet and prior to Criterion putting them out, 
there was just no way uh, you could not access them whatsoever. So uh, now each individual show, Playhouse 90, U.S. Steel Hour, uh, had their own staff, right, dedicated. So the crew mostly would have been the same on each episode. Uh, but the writers and the actors were, you know, pulled from the New York stage scene or young up-and-coming actors who uh, hadn't done anything before, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of these people are, this is the first time they're really being shown to a national audience at all. Uh, so, like, Bang the Drum Slowly stars Paul Newman, and it's Paul Newman... I don't think it's it's premiere, but it's before he was known. Right, right. Right? Uh, there's a really great line in the introduction of Bang the Drum Slowly uh, where uh, the guy who plays the uh, the manager, Dutch, uh, recounts that he said, I said to Paul, I don't think you have a chance in this business because you look too much like Marlon. Yeah, Brando. which is really funny to me. Like the, the entire line. <laughs> Who's going to hire yeah. you? Like the entire logic there. Like, <laughs> like someone who looks a someone who looks a lot like Marlon Brando actually probably would get more work. Right. Well, uh, see, Paul like, Newman, I get, obviously, I kind of get where his logic's <laughs> yeah. going in the sense yeah. that, like, there's. I could see it, it could go both ways, right? Like, it's like. You want like because there's that thing where it's like, well, yeah, maybe when they're like, oh, well, we can't get Brando, but we can get this guy instead. He's right, good. Right, he's right, he's right. close enough. But the flip side is like not having your own unique look would be you're like, that's all you're ever gonna get is like. Can you? Uh, can we just live in the universe of a second where Paul Newman's entire career was the poor man's Marlon Brando, God, where that's... he only got cast off roles from Brando. <laughs> That that it, I mean it it's definitely possible because you know there were probably right. there's probably a million people who would like not a million but you know what I mean like a bunch of people who are probably like the poor man's Paul Newman you know what I mean like it's, it's right right right, like right every every actor has that like you know if you start digging around and film enough and and you get the oh this person is just the the low rent version of this person like right uh, right and so like it could have happened like, have. Half of holidays leading Hollywood, half of Hollywood's leading men currently are the poor man's Paul Newman. That's well, like, I mean, yeah, I would uh, say that, that we're, we're yeah, we've definitely crossed into a weird, weird world where now people are the poor man's version of the poor man's version of Paul Newman. You know what I mean? It's like we're like right, the, right. we're on like four generations removed in a weird way, but yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, let's just start with bang bang the drum slowly. It was originally. Uh, Aired September 26, 1956, on the United States. I assumed States we were going to go in hour. numerical order and start with. Well, we. Because one's 53, I, right? Isn't. Or, there is one that's 53. I only. Because we were already talking about I Newman. Know, I thought we'd jump I can't, in on this I one. can't. I okay. need to go. I watched them in order on purpose. Yes. If it's going to hurt your brain. It will. Let's talk about. Uh, which one is first? A wind, a, uh, wind from the south, or whatever it's called. I can't even yeah. like, remember. A wind from the south, which actually aired uh, September fourteenth, nineteen fifty-five. Okay, um, so it was just a year earlier, but it is still the earliest on this set. So we will talk about it first. All right, uh, a wind from the south is uh, season three, episode six of the United States Steel Hour. I made you it do this directed- because I have nothing to say about this one. <laughs> well, I have also nothing just get this one no, out of the way. Nothing of interest. I, I see. I have I nothing see. here. I see. 
we didn't want to accidentally end with the one yeah, we have nothing kinda. to say. Yeah, kind of. I don't want to like that makes like sense. go out on a downer like I've got nothing for this yeah. one. I'm like, boy, I did not even this whatever. All right. So this is directed by Daniel Petrie. It is written by playwright James Costigan and it stars Julie Harris as a young Irish woman who is living with her brother and apparently has never known love before. And her brother's an asshole. That's all I've got. Her, and her, brother, her brother's a jerk, and all the men in her life are not that great. No, there's <laughs> really, they yeah, there, there's no right. there's no winners here, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, you know, beyond talking about the plot, there's not a lot to talk about in this one. Uh, the fact that these are all live uh, means that this one is unique among these three, at least, that... It's commercial breaks are also act breaks, and in fact, they have act, act one, act right. two I title that, cards. That part was right? interesting because it, it it's the one that feels they all have a stage play feel to them by nature of what they right. are. But this one is the right. most stage play feeling. It's like, well, I, then I went up and got popcorn, <laughs> like right, right. And this one only has, uh, well, I mean, all of them have limited sets, right? Obviously, and perhaps, perhaps we should. Uh, we should build this episode to talking about uh, Requiem for a Heavyweight last. I can do that. Because, yeah. because that has the, uh, it's the most ornate. Yeah, it's certainly got uh, the most complicated set arrangement and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, There's like five this one's, or so locations yeah. in that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, Bang the Drum Slowly has its own interesting stuff going on. Yeah. Editing-wise and set-piece-wise. A win from the south is the most stage. I mean, the, out a win from the, the south is, is, is essentially. It's not quite a drawing room play, but it's bordering yeah. on it. It has two locations, and one of them is just an outdoor scene. So it's just like, right? There's, it's really just the one room. Uh, is, it's is the one. It it's the one that shot the most like a three camera sitcom. Yes, too. too. Right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, because this the 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 inn where our main characters live, uh, and work. Um, is set up in a real classic sitcom. You know, yeah, living the couch room faces kitchen. The, yeah, yeah. Basically, the couch yeah. faces the uh, faces the screen. Yeah, yeah. It's it's the same setup as Mary Tyler Moore's apartment, the bunker's house. Literally uh, every sitcom yeah. you've ever seen. Basically, yeah. you know, it's it's three camera. Actually, this could be two camera, honestly, but it's probably three camera. Um. And, you know, when someone walks into the kitchen, they just cut to the camera that's pointed at the kitchen door <laughs> from right. from the one that's pointed at the living room, um, which is also the dining room and a bar space. It's just like the whole parlor is the first the main room of the first floor there. Um, but we never go upstairs. We go out to the porch for a scene. We get a scene elsewhere um, at a dance place. Uh a dance is going on at I the forgot International about the dance Hotel. place. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. And we get a scene when they meet at the castle that is just a bunch of bushes and a bench. Right. Well, that yeah, that's right. what, that was the one I called kind of in my mind was kind of a half-assed one. It's like it's yeah. like one of those like stage settings where it's like, well, we we got the tree and a bush and a bench. We're good. Right, right, it's outside. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in that regard it is it is sort of the thing you expect from 
from a stage production, you know, kind of minimalist, right? In right, that right. Way. Well, I mean, right. and that's what's interesting about it. I think in in that it, it is it's right on that cusp where they're where they're kind of playing with both, right? Like the 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 set dressing for the actual inn is fairly complicated. It is it looks like an inn. It it is it is modern sitcom level of set dressing, right? It is like it looks like a room, uh, right? But like once they leave. The dance is less so because they they can get away with a very minimal building for a dance hall anyway because it doesn't have furniture. Um, yeah. And then by the time you get to the outdoor scene, you get almost into play territory. Where it's like, well, here's your bush, here's your bench, here's your tree. We're done here. Um, and so it's kind of interesting. I wonder, because we're talking about television studios here, mm-hmm. I wonder uh, these aren't huge sound stages. These are, you know, New York buildings. Right. They're not. So do you think that they would have been, that some of these sets, like the dance, the dance hall, at least, and the, uh, and the main inn would have had to have been on separate studios, right? Maybe. I mean, it depends on like the, 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 the outdoor scene is actually a pretty tight shot. So like. Right, right, right. It could could have been a very, very small set. Like it, it. As long as you know yeah. you're never gonna pull out, like pull back, like right, right, you can. Right. It can I be very fair. small. It can basically be a closet. Um, yeah. Especially when you're shooting in black and white, and you don't have to worry. Like lighting, like lighting matters, but like colors don't as much. So like, you you don't have to really worry about like, like you can like it gives them a little bit more freedom to make things a very and it's nighttime, so it's like well, it's just black behind them. Fine, you know, I mean, like you can't. It's a little bit harder to detect that that's just a wall painted black in black and white than it is in like color. So, like, right. you know, it it's uh, that's fair. Yeah, it literally could I just, be a closet. You know, <laughs> it could literally be the janitor closet. <laughs> imagine for for some of these as they got more complicated. Well, yeah, something like um, the other ones we're going to talk about would absolutely require like probably multiple. Yeah, which subjects. which would require uh, would also require you know actors running. From studio to studio. Well, I, right? I assume that they that those are all interconnected in really weird ways to make that sort of stuff possible because yeah, they, they, this wouldn't be I'm, the first show that had multiple I'm sure, studio sets. I'm sure they're not right. I'm sure they're not changing floors right. during it. No one's getting stuck on an elevator, <laughs> which trying would be to, very trying funny. to get to their next scene. But then, <laughs> that I mean, that probably funny. aligns with all those commercial breaks and stuff. It's like, well, we need to like go to this other room so we're gonna right. this is where right. commercial break yeah. exists commercial commercial breaks were were the saving grace right. of doing these sorts of things the most interesting stuff about a win from the south is maybe background material that is covered in the introduction uh julie harris is not irish and uh costigan when he wrote the play had another actress in mind and wasn't he sort of had Julie Harris thrust on her? Uh, or well, he on seemed him, like he seemed ha- it was interesting because he wrote with another actress in mind, and then Julie Harris was like kind of proffered as a as an option, and it's not like he didn't seem like he was upset about it as much as like, well, there's no way she's going to sign up to do this, right? Like, what are you right. talking about? And, like, she's way too important but, for this, right? But also, when he met her and they talk about her saying. There's no way I can't do this role because I wouldn't do it justice as uh, as any actual like actress of Irish descent would do. Um, I guess it is kind of interesting seeing seeing just uh, a mid-century advent uh, 
seeing a mid-century uh, version of the, you know, we're recording this around St. Patrick's Day. So the fact that that sort of, oh, I've got a, I, I'm one sixteenth Irish, so I I feel a connection whenever I go to Ireland. Right. Uh, yeah, seeing that, that existed about that. in 1950. Yeah, I would say that's the most too. interesting part. One of the more interesting parts about this movie is the idea that like they they make fun of the idea that like well everybody who goes to Ireland's like looking for something like some right, spiritual right. connection to their family's homeland or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, another interesting background is that the uh, the main theme of this, which is sung live at the beginning uh, and during the act breaks and at the end, uh, is sung by Merv Griffin, uh, who would go on to create uh, Wheel of Fortune. Yeah, <laughs> right. And also, like, is uh, um, yeah, like he does the intro for that this particular one. It's it's very right, right. It's all very yeah. strange, <laughs> really, when you get down to it. Right, right. Um, and and one more bit of trivia in that dance scene. Uh, Roy Scheider is an extra in the background uh, years before anything you would know Roy Scheider from, like Jaws, for instance. Right. I mean, yeah, like, yeah. yeah, it's it's just like, well, it's like, it's it's the early it's the early version of like what we see later on when they're like, actually, this is the first appearance of Sylvester Stallone. You know, like about twenty years. Like we've had plenty of movies right, that right, do right, that right. for us, right? Where you're like you read the Wikipedia, and you're like, okay, was, whatever. Yeah, what yeah, movie that was, was that? I don't even know. That was just a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, it was Downhill it was. Racer. Yeah, Sylvester Stallone is just in a restaurant scene as an extra, and somehow, uh, yeah, that's his first movie. Um, <laughs> do you think? Do you think there will ever come an age where uh, Ryan Reynolds' career is prestigious enough that there will be people going back to? Two guys, a girl, in a pizza place. As as this was where Ryan Reynolds made his his right, his yeah, national premiere. <laughs> I don't know. I I'm I'm confused about what a prestige actor is anymore in the modern era. I don't know that they exist. Uh, like it's a very confu- yeah. the all of, all of entertainment has become a very very confusing thing that I don't fully comprehend in a meaningful way. It's like, do right. prestige actors exist? I mean, they certainly do, but like. What does it mean? Because they're all in what kind of amounts to hot trash. Like I don't know. Yeah, it's like yeah. I don't know. It's very confusing. Like I guess Ryan Reynolds is maybe a prestige actor. I mean, like he's certainly got brand and name recognition. But right, like, right, right, right. Like you don't go like to see one of his movies because you're like, well, this is going to be high quality art. Right. Like, not, not, not not. I mean, I enjoy he's, his movies. He's a but, blockbuster like, actor. I just yeah. I was. I was imagining a world where it might be possible. But I think they might be the same thing at this older. point. Yeah, he gets a little older and starts doing more dramatic roles. He, he plays Superman's uh, dad. He can't do you know. Deadpool anymore. Yeah, he plays Superman's dad. Uh, <laughs> he goes the full Brando route. Um, <laughs> yeah. Ryan Reynolds going the full Brando is really like would be an amazing <laughs> turn. Really, really good stuff right there. Oh man, with with everything that the full Brando. Oh means, yeah, the whole actually. full Brando. The yeah. full full Brando. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's man. just wearing boo-boos all the time. Yeah. It's, oh, it's great. Yeah. It's beautiful. Oh, man. What do you think Ryan Reynolds' Island of Dr. Murrow will be? I don't uh, know, but I want to watch it. Speculate. I would let's love not it. speculate. I can't wait for it. Uh, anyway. God, we can um, only hope. Yeah, so this one, you know, it did surprise me and then unsurprised me plot-wise. 
in <laughs> okay. that. Okay. I, uh, you know, when the older married man started talking to, uh, to Siobhan uh, about how she needs to fall in love, uh, I was surprised when that segued into, oh, by the way, I met this young Navy man who would, who you should go out with. Yeah, that of... did that did catch me off guard when when I <laughs> right. thought that was where it was going to stop. I right, was like, right. "Oh, then... hey, like this is he's just playing matchmaker. That's not yeah. what I expect. That's not what I expected, right?" And then it wasn't what and was then, happening. Yeah, they tricked us. I mean, or yeah, or ultimately but... did what we actually thought they were going to do. Right, 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 right. The match the match falls apart and uh turns out the older man is is in love with Siobhan and she's in love with him too since movie he rented a room from her yeah. for 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 a couple of days uh and he's a, apparently a failed poet and that's all you need to be to to get an Irish wife is to not you, you've want learned the secrets. an Irish wife uh, right can't can't want one just because they're a redhead you got to want one because you're a failed po- failed poet whose wife is I'm fine. Uh, I I like, am. This movie I feel like should deeply upset me, but it's just confusing, yeah. so I don't feel right. deeply upset. Like, yeah, it's it like says a lot of things about women that are really like fucked up, but it says them in such a confusing way. At the end, I'm like, I don't know <laughs> what it's saying. Like, <laughs> like his wife is understandably resentful of him being basically an asshole uh right but then the movie pretends like it's like beautiful i don't know i'm confused yeah yeah but like she's also society lady but like i can't figure out how that's possible who's how are they affording trips to ireland is what i want to know who's who's paying for these trips there's some weird things going on with class in this movie maybe yeah uh in that but like, have, no, I don't uh, think weird in the good way. Weird in the no confusing no, way. Not, not in a way that articulating it would mean anything. Uh, yeah, this is, uh, you know, their their upper class um, somehow, and then and then the other couple staying in the place is working class. Uh, no, the most uh, relatable probably, characters in the movie. Right, working middle class. I don't know the 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 uh, the other Irish brother and sister who who come well, in and yeah, and, well, and drink pink gin. The older couple. Well, wait, they're not Irish. Wait, am I wrong? Am I thinking of the no. wrong group? Like, there's the people from Detroit. No, which I, are the people I'm I saying. Love the people the from movie. Detroit are the people we're talking about. Yes, but there is my favorite people in the movie are the man and the woman who see Siobhan at the dance. Yes, and then right, right, right. To the, 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 the kind of the pain in the ass couple. Yes. Right, 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 right. They're, those they're, are separate. Those are there's two separate groups of people. But, but yes. there's a lot of characters right. in a movie for for as sort of little that there is here. There's a lot of people in this movie. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. has the largest cast uh, of mean, the three movies we watched, and is which also I is testament not that big. to uh, you know they are coordinating a large larger cast here, right? Yeah, so I mean it's not bad. That the technical way, aspect of that, yeah. right? And we do get. I, I almost completely forgot. We do get the uh, 
the small insert of traditional Irish dance being done by children. Oh, right, uh, right. Which, which, which it feels like they just kidnapped an Irish dance troupe and was like, here, we're yeah. going to put you in this movie. But I imagine that there's a very good possibility that that's the first time that was shown on American television. So uh, That wouldn't be surprising. You know. I mean, like, you know, keep in mind, 1950-whatever, like, kind of almost right. everything you do is the first time that's been shown on television, right? Like, right, right, got, right, right, right. It's not like it's been going on for a long time. So it's like, oh, it's the first, like, I feel like there's a certain sort of, like, um, like when you talk about movies, they're, they're, they've been around long enough that, like, when you find out that the first time something happened is in the 50s or 60s, you're like, holy shit, it took that long? But with TV, yeah. it's like, well, it's like TV's only been around for, like, a decade. <laughs> like, right. it's like, well, yeah, it's the first time, like, oh, the, you know, the first time, I, you know, anything was shown on TV, right? Like, not to be mean, but, like, you know, it, it. I'm sure it was. And I'm sure it was very interesting for the audience. And I'm sure that's why it's in there is because somebody realized that, like, somebody probably really likes that thing and was like, oh, this will be yeah. very novel for our audience. Like, They'll watch it and they'll go, "Oh, hey, that was really interesting," and and will probably be familiar to some of our some of our audience who are of Irish descent and maybe only like second generation or something like that. And then for some of the rest of our audience, it will just be a fascinating sort of um, curio to see in a movie, um, right? Uh, it, it is it is interesting because it is essentially it's not apropos of nothing, but it kind of is a. It is a, literally just a dance number, sort of inserted in the middle, where like you don't even. It kind of it will take. It kind of takes you aback a little bit because you're like, wait, wait, what? What's happening now? Like now we're just watching this dance troupe of children, right? And isn't it delightful? Oh, um, yeah. Also delightful, the I, IMDb user review of this that pops up uh, is is someone practicing their comedy writing, uh, okay. but they do get a couple of good lines. Uh, the title song was sung live for this show by a young singer named Merv Griffin, who would go on to create Wheel of Fortune and do afternoon talk shows. He had a buffet named after him in Atlantic City. While it's a nice song, like the drama, pres- like the drama presentation, it, it is not really memorable. <laughs> he did not like it, by the way. <laughs> well, I mean, I can't. I, so far, I can't fault him. Like, I mean, it is not yeah. a very highly memorable story or song. Right, really, right. But. He is, yeah. Um, would say if you're Irish, this show might have been more inter- more interesting than a, than to a general viewer. Uh, still, it is a decent program, especially considering the live aspects of the performances. Uh, <laughs> you'd love it if you're Irish. Uh, yeah, it's it's fine. Yeah, uh, I mean, but, I I don't hate it or anything like that. It just right. it reminded me of like what it reminded me of is like if you go back and watch old sitcoms. There'll be the movie. There'll be the episodes, which I used to do with my grandparents a lot. And like, yeah, you. you there'll be the episodes where like the cast is like, like on like just hitting it. You know what I mean? Where you're like, it's enough, kind of in any era to make you just laugh because it's just going really. And then you'll get the episodes where you're like, well, this one's not very. It's okay, and this sort yeah. of feels like one of those episodes where it's like, well, there's something wrong with it. It, it and it's good enough that like when you're watching it, you're not like, oh my god, is this thing ever going to end? But like, it's real mediocre. It's real middle of the road. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, on so the other hand, on. the other two are not middle of the road. They aren't. They're both phenomenal. Yeah, uh, I really like them. Both. Yeah. Uh, which one do you want to talk about next? So if, we, if wait, we're wait, going so strictly in, chronologically, yeah. it's bang yeah. the drum slowly. Right. But yes. Um. 
I well, let's just go chronologically because I also feel like in terms of like pure like things to talk about, probably <laughs> yeah, that's the we'll sort build, of order. We'll build that way too. Yeah, yeah. Um, All right. Yeah, so bang the drums. So slowly. bang the drums. Drain the drums slowly. As already stated, stars Paul Newman, uh, directed by Daniel Petrie, uh, written by Arnold Schulman, based on the Mark Harris novel. Let's be frank here. The movie the movie stars the song Streets of Laredo. <laughs> no, Which is a, a song I dearly love. I, I do love that song yeah. a lot. Uh, I'm not, you know, mainly I like the Johnny Cash version, but nonetheless, like, still. It's a great song. <laughs> this one was remade uh if you've if you've seen the film version i have i have uh, not seen but i ha- i did plex thinks that i uh, that's the one i wanted to watch uh apparently yeah, it that has doesn't surprise uh, me. um robert de niro in it robert yeah robert de niro plays plays bruce the the guy who dies uh and michael moriarty plays the plays the newman role um this one is much more technically interesting to me. Yeah. Uh, the way they do the scene transitions by spotlighting Newman as he walks between sets and change everything. He's in the Zach Morris's. Yeah. 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 He's Zach <laughs> Morris's. It. Uh, but yeah, it's just, it's phenomenally done. Uh, yeah, just the way. Yeah, it's it real. All works it's out real together. neat. It, it brings in the. It, it is a really, and we've, obviously we've seen that before. Like that's not. Not the right. only time this ever happens, but it works extremely well in here to use him as the narrator voice and as a scene transition at the same time. It, it's very, it's very smooth. It works real good. Yeah, and I assume that the uh, conceit of him being the guy who actually wrote the book carries over from the book too. <laughs> you know, I d- wouldn't it I doubt be that really funny if the movie is not, <laughs> or like if you if the film okay, version would, just abandons would... everything. <laughs> It would be silly, um, but it's I'm not going to read the book, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah, uh, but yeah, <laughs> but yeah, this one, you know, it. I think it's a really great story. Hmm. Um, very interesting story. Great comedy in it as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely died when Bruce calls him collect, and they're having the yes, no, that, that is a great great scene. It's well, so good. Yeah, while the operator keeps trying to say, "Do you ex- do you accept the yeah. charges?" And then he ends it with like, "I don't know. Who, it was a wrong number. I don't know who that person is." <laughs> right. At the very right. end. She very she good. finally she finally said after Bruce hangs up, she finally says, "Well, you've already had your conversation, so you have to accept the accept the charges." Uh, and <laughs> he's like, uh, "I don't know who that was. That was wrong Mr. number." <laughs> Mr. Wigan, uh, and she says, "Yeah, there's no Wigan here." Uh, you know, yeah, he does yes. the very dad jokey thing of answering answering the phone as if he's a different business every time. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's all there's, there's a lot of really it's like it's low hanging comedy, but it's very it's right. very good. It's well delivered. Right, right, it, right. It's it, yeah, it's it feels good. It's very funny for dad humor. It is Paul, it's it's dad humor on point. Paul Newman is charismatic enough that yeah. Paul Newman can do low hanging comedy and it land. Yeah. Uh, that is he's, one he's of got that really good strikes. timing he's good at delivering yeah, yeah it's just it's yeah. he's very good at it well and he's also like good at he's actually well i mean oh boy surprise surprise paul is a very good actor um <laughs> yeah turns <laughs> out shocking Who i know knew? right <laughs> uh but like he also like carries off a lot of things that would be annoying from other actors in this role like he's constantly complaining he's constantly being a cheapskate and complaining about his taxes and, and right, money. right 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 and, right and you get the wrong actor for that kind of role 
and it gets very obnoxious very quickly. Whereas he's yes. able, because he's so charismatic, he carries it off. His complaining doesn't feel annoying the way other actors complaining could feel, which is sort of its own sort of accomplishment. Right. I wonder how much of the book were stories about other players, or if the entire book is also focused on Bruce, That's a good, I on, wonder, on yeah. Henry talking about Bruce. Um, because it, it works very well here uh, in the length that we have, too. Um, right. But yeah, Bruce you could definitely imagine... a full story, but there could be that. more things happening with Bruce, too, and that wouldn't... You know, it wouldn't negatively affect a story if it weren't just vignettes about Wiggins' life instead of him talking about Bruce the entire time. Right, right. Uh, yeah, I mean, and you can also imagine, like, of course, in a book, like, you can imagine, like, other yeah, other players being, their stories being expanded. Like, we get sort of little tiny snippets of all these sort of interesting characters who very well could be more expansively explored, right? Right, right. Yeah. The the new catcher they're trying to replace Bruce with who, who is also an, an idiot. <laughs> but, I, yeah. That, but, but it's an insane idiot. Yeah. I, I, idiot. I'm a big fan actually, because he reminds to, me, to he reminds Dutch. me of a mod, a more modern sitcom sitcom stereotype of like that yeah. guy. He's basically a Kramer is basically what yeah, he well, is. He's, he's just showing up with like motorcycles, cowboy outfits, all this like random shit. He's also sort of a more modern, uh, sports movie character too yes, though yeah, right you're absolutely he's, right yeah he's he's really you know he's not quite as audacious as say Willie Mays Hayes from 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 uh uh what's it the not hot shots um uh, the the baseball one yeah, that ma- I can't think major of the name league. of right? is it major, major no, league is yeah. major league yeah it's major league yeah um you know he's not he's not that audacious with his wealth but you know he he walks a motorcycle into the absolutely the, they apparently bought the locker the room or something. It was very confusing. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> and then decides to hide it in the shower. Yeah. Uh, Which is all yeah. very good. He's, it's all it's all yeah. very, yeah, he's, and I think in some ways he's supposed to present, because, you know, what I mean, I, this this is being, what's 1956, right? We're actually pretty far down the path towards sort of more audacious sports figures in general. Like sports figures have always had a certain sort of like wildness to them in in American yeah. history, and we're only that's only escalating. And so like it brings in a sort of different perspective on because the rest of the club is very pretty. They they fight and they get angry at each other, but they're fairly straight laced. And this brings in a sort of like dynamism that right, uh, right, that, right, like right, you, right, right. That kind of like livens up the mood and and also kind of shows like well like you know they're not. Despite sports players all being very good at their sport, they're also sometimes a little wild, right? So, yeah, I also like this one as a story of community. Uh, Henry Wiggins uses his position of privilege of his own talent, uh, but the privilege of his own talent to make sure that this friend of his has a job, right? And then, you know, it's it's out of pity, ultimately, but everyone does come together to support Bruce when they find out that he's dying. Uh, and Bruce is obviously touched by it. Hmm. Um, yeah. It's, and Albert Salmi does a fantastic job as Bruce. And characters like Bruce, it would be so easy to play too dumb. Yeah. Right? No, it, it really, uh, I was constantly worried because I 
this these things always worry me that the movie will go there go make it that way but it it's played very very well i think right um, right and you know he bruce even gets wins after after he finds out he's dying he does start to believe himself he gets the confidence right, he yeah. starts he starts taking the notes on baseball and imp- impresses dutch uh you know, gets a begrudging respect out of Dutch, even as Dutch still wants to fire him after that. But still, uh, you know, Wiggins' character is also takes pity on Bruce, but in taking pity on him, has a human connection with him, right? Well, and, yeah, it clearly expands obvious. beyond pity. At some point, like right. it, it is, it is born out of pity, but like am, it is clear as the story moves forward that yeah, it the, the relationships expand and grow beyond the boundaries right. of just pure pity. Yeah, I am sure that this is further explored in the book version, and and for time and compression of story, we have to do something else. But obviously, the way things come together, Bruce calls Henry because Henry is Bruce's only friend, right? <laughs> when he calls him, yeah, and he calls him with with news that you call your closest people, right? Yeah, about. I mean, yeah. and 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 I, you know, and Henry Wigan like reacts kind of i think i mean very naturally right which is like our relationship isn't really at this point but like like very also right. clearly you have nobody else to call like if you call yeah. that's like that's the that's the sort of the rub of that sort of situation right it's like if somebody calls you with this information you congratulations you now have the the moral obligation of being yeah the person yeah. who bears that information right. right and like and this this person clearly sees you as the most important person in their life and which is like which gives you a certain moral responsibility right like at that point you're like even if you don't necessarily view that relationship that way you now you you now have to right like you need to uh and henry grows because of it right like he becomes better because of it right Um, oh which is interesting holy crap uh the guy who plays the other the other catcher piney woods is George Peppard. He's uh he's uh the main guy from the A team. Like the the Oh my god, you're Yeah. Yeah, you can Hannibal see it if you think yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that yeah. now you know he's so much younger there, obviously. Yeah, but you, you can know. see in the face if it's, you think about it, you're like, Oh yeah, no that right. that checks out. Thirty years. But yeah. Uh damn man. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As we've already said, another aspect yeah. of this is, you know, it's it's Eventually, with the way these things were run, everyone who was doing any sort of acting in New York ended up in one of them, right? So, right. Uh, uh, but yeah, right. I mean, yeah. If you, yeah, every, yeah, everybody, you either you either fall out of the business or you appear in seven hundred other things. Like it's, <laughs> right, those are the right, two things. Right, right, I mean, right. yeah, everybody. You know, there's only three main like cast. Like on the Wikipedia, there's only like. Not very many named like actors in the cast list, but every single one of them has like, and then they were on seventeen other shows. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. Maybe they got into movies if they were lucky. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. This one's just it's really fun. It's really heartfelt, and despite the, despite what we're dealing with, it's not overly sentimental. I don't feel. No, uh, I I think it it strikes a good balance, and I think a lot of that comes down to acting. It, honestly, I think there's a lot of really good acting here that stops it from going too far one way or the other. Yeah, and you know to to talk about these in terms of them being 
young military vet playwrights who are mostly the guys writing them uh you know that sort of in britain that would be the angry young man generation right we've talked about that before right. with Thaddeus chayefsky's sort of stuff as we've talked about it in previous episodes um as the american version of that i mean uh the way this ends with Higgins describing I was his pallbearer and two guys he used to work with at the factory were his pallbearers and the fourth was another guy from his hometown and the club sent some flowers wrote, yeah. <laughs> sent flowers but no one no one from the team no one from management showed up right. no one from the club showed up it's you know just a a reminder that even when we have that moment of of community around Bruce of a bunch of people coming together from his job to celebrate him it is still this reminder in 1956 that capitalism is what capitalism is right <laughs> and your, well, your boss is not your dad uh right yeah the the there is no family, not really, yeah. in that way. Yeah. And, like, I mean, it even plays – I mean, even Wiggins talks about his, his failing as a friend, right? Like, his right. friend, you know, Bruce asked for one thing, and Wiggins had it and didn't mail it, which right. is something I, that resonates probably with everybody, but really hit home of, like, you know, I have regrets like that with my with family members I've lost and stuff like that, where it's like, well, I could have right. been more engaged with them. And I wasn't. Right. And like this is a friend, but nonetheless, it's the same idea, right? Like yeah. that dropping yeah. the ball on like maintaining and like doing a good job with your relationships. When they yeah. it would have been nothing. It, it would have been it would have been a five minute job to he's like, I had stamps, I had it, I could have mailed it. Yeah. There's no reason why yeah. I didn't. Other than I just yeah. didn't. The the last the last bit is just Newman is a good actor. Yeah, I don't want to just say he that. He delivers again. that. Di- but, he but delivers that. The delivery extremely of, well. of of the grief, of the disappointment in yourself for how things went down. It's just, it's all there, and it's so good. Uh yeah. Our next one <laughs> stars Jack Balance, who I would not have thought was a good actor before we watched this. Right. Um, Jack Balance, uh, in my mind, is Jack Balance's self-parody through the rest of his acting career, right? Um, yeah. Uh, here in Requiem for a Heavyweight, originally aired October 11th, 1956, as part of Playhouse 90, uh, directed by Ralph Nelson and written, as I said, by Rod Serling. Uh, we get Jack Balance as Harlan Mountain McClintock, a boxer who has had his memory beaten out of him uh punch punch drunk syndrome is how it's referred to uh i believe in the episode itself yeah i think he calls um, himself calls it punchy a couple times which i've uh, yeah, heard of yeah. quite a few times this is this is great for being a, a boxing story where we never actually see the boxing happen right right <laughs> Yeah. Which a lot of times uh, is really just the best way to go about it. But. Right, right, right. Not a bad way to go about it at all. Uh, this one's kind of interesting. Um, Army, who is his trainer, uh, is played by Ed Wynn. Uh, and this was Ed Wynn's a comedian and had been a comedian all of his life. Um, obviously, he's an older guy. You know, he's a comedian 
pre-television, you know, doing vaudeville stuff, I'm sure, uh, considering he was born in 1886. Uh, but... Uh, He'd never really done dramatic work. This is one of his first dramatic roles. Right. Uh, and he was super nervous about it. Um, so there's some uh, some material around the film on, like, I think his his son made a documentary about, about him and getting himself built up to the point where he believed in himself that he could do uh, a dramatic role right. from his history of comedic work, you know. And yeah, you know, he mostly continued to do comedic work too, right? <laughs> he was a regular on the Red Skelton show after this. Yeah, all through the '60s, he was on like he was on Do- that darn cat. He was Uncle Albert in Mary Poppins. But he did uh, he did also maybe get some work out of this too, in that he was on a couple of episodes of The Twilight Zone. Well, there you go. In any case, um, yeah, this one's this one's also very well acted. Uh, I think the uh, the guy in the bar, the old boxer, who is telling stories and is meant meant never overtly stated, but meant for us to infer that this is what Mountain will become if Mountain does not become something else. The guy who's just hanging out at the bar telling stories and right, remembering right, right. details yeah. right the entire time. But even, uh, but even like, even yeah, it's sort of it's that way, but it's also even kind of a little bit darker because like, Mountain's clearly taken much more of a beating that that guy, than that guy, right, had, right, right, right. right that right. guy seems to be mostly story and not a lot of like, yeah, actual. You know what I mean? Like he's just too, he's too smooth and like and and I yes, I think so, but we even see that like. Mountain can't do that. Like he just doesn't right, have that right. in him. Anyway, I do think that guy was, like I said, with Bruce in the other one, uh, he's not doing that. You know, Bruce's Bruce's dumb played well. Uh, this right. guy is a little too too dumb, I think, in how he's being presented. Um, but also, you know, he's he's not just meant to be punch drunk. He's actually he's meant to be actually drunk as well. I mean, he's supposed so. to be drunk, and he's also supposed to be like more of a more of a storyteller than right, 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 right. right. Yeah. Um. But yeah, everybody's fantastic in this. Uh, there was a. This one's real interesting in the remakes, uh, because it ends up with such a weird collection of actors all playing the same character. Right. Yeah. Uh, so the feature film is Anthony Quinn, which came out in 62. Uh, the BBC did a teleplay version as well in the same manner as this one, live broadcast starring Sean Connery uh, in the main role. And there's a 1985 Broadway version. <laughs> uh and our main boxer is played by John Lithgow in what? that. What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and a- even in 85, John Lithgow, I- I'm really having trouble picturing that. Yeah, me too. Uh, you know, he can do he can do drama, certainly. Uh, yeah, but, like, he also just doesn't seem to, like, I wonder, what did he look like in that time period? Like, I'm trying to uh, picture him as a the, boxer. He seems to always look the, the same, right? The only thing from that time period I can picture him in, in 
is the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai. Right. And, uh, right, that's not him playing this role at all. Uh, but, uh, you know, character actors had had broader. Uh, yeah, I mean, for me, it's like not to be then, like too like specific to body type. I mean, I guess so. I mean, he did look. He's changed a lot over the years, but still, it's hard to picture. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, how old would have John Lithgow been in 1985? That I cannot answer. Yeah. Uh, Jack Palance here, the character is supposed to be in his mid-30s, and Jack Palance, I think, was 37, if I remember correctly. Um, right. Yeah, Lithgow would have been forty, so not I that mean, different. Yeah, I, I mean, but, yeah, it's more more just like the yeah. way John Lithgow looks. Just it's hard for me to imagine him as a boxer. Period. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like not just in a dramatic role or anything like that, but just as a boxer, it is hard to imagine. Well, uh, beat him up a bit. Give him that. Give him that facial scarring that Jack Palance right, yeah, sports maybe. here. I can see it. The maybe swelling. everybody looks like a boxer if you do that to them. Right, right. Swell their face. Everybody looks like a boxer. Uh, you could do it too. Just yeah. Have your have your children punch you in the punch you in the face a lot. That happens enough uh, on its own. Thank you very much. I don't need to encourage it. <laughs> yeah. Children are a little prone to accidents if if you're not aware. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, but yeah, he's. Uh, I was. I was not expecting Jack Palance to be as good. In this right. role, yeah, as he was, yeah. I mean, he's uh, good. I, I, I would say, yeah. I mean, it. I, yeah, I, I mean, I think, I can see it. Like, it made it. Yeah, I don't know. It, it, I mean, I mean, Jack, Jack Palance by this time had been nominated for supporting actor twice. Yeah. Uh, so maybe I am, uh, just not. I admit I am not familiar with his career outside of uh like city slickers onward. So uh, Yeah, see that's know. what I'm wondering. I'm wondering uh, if you have a very specific like right. frame I have of this view of Jack Palance. Yeah. <laughs> so Yeah, cuz I I mean so, yeah, yeah, I I do too, but I I've, I've definitely seen him in more straight I I'm sure that I've seen him in more straightforward roles cuz this wasn't as like off-putting for me as that um but like, I think it works okay. I think, you know, it's certainly we're yeah, not talking. About, we're not talking about eighties Jack Palance, okay? Like, it's just boring. not. It's yeah. just a different thing. I guess I just, that's the I thing. Is you and I know. are familiar with eighties and nineties Jack Palance pretty much. But yes, yeah. Um, I don't know that I, uh, I have ever seen anything Jack Palance was in that was not produced in my lifetime. So yeah, yeah. I must have. Uh, but I don't know what it is. But yeah, like just enough TMC or whatever. But like, right, 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 right. Um, but but yeah. yeah, I probably don't even know the name of the movie because like that's how TMC worked half the time. You're like just like turn it on in the <laughs> middle of a movie, watch like an hour of the right. middle of a movie, and be like, I wonder what movie that was. Well, we'll never know. Got things to do. Bye. Yeah. But yeah, no, I I mean it works. It works here. He's got a. He, weirdly enough, he's got a good demeanor for it. He's got a good um, f- sort of facial type and stuff that, like, right. he he's he does a very good job in this role. Like, he he and, reads very authentic. It's it's 
the role doesn't require the role requires quite a bit of acting, but not that much articulation because of the nature of the character. Um, so he carries that off a lot of a lot of a lot is conveyed without a lot of words. Um, it's yeah. quite good. But he's also just it's just very well cast physically too. Like yeah, when when Mountain talks about women seeing his face and being scared. Jack yeah, I'm Jack has too. a yeah, face for that. Yeah, 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 yeah. No. right. Well, especially if you add all those scars and stuff on there, like it, right, it reads. Right. Jack Palance does have like a very severe face, just in general. Yeah. Uh, and then you add on some extra scarring and stuff. It re you're like when he's talking to that to the woman in the in the um, employment bureau or whatever. Oh, you're like, yeah. You're like, yeah. No, I get it. You, I understand why you would be. Afraid I, you would never be able to find a job. I get it. I was so blown away by the scene in the employment office. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's probably. Just, it might be the best scene in the movie. Honestly speaking. Yeah. But yeah. Everything about it is just so amazing. Uh, yeah. Just it's very well acted. It's very well staged. Everything about it. It it's yeah. reads extremely dramatic without being heavy handed. It's it's very good. Right. Um, and just. Sells his character so well. Like he he's he's prone to get emotional, but realizes he's getting emotional and apologizes for yeah, it. He's constantly reining himself he's in. Not, gets a little yeah. out of control, reins himself back in. And he's not he's not letting his emotions over overboil into into violence. Right. Right. That's you can definitely see is. a bad version of this movie where like it, yeah. where the actor lets it go too far. And it doesn't read right anymore, and it reads scary. Right now, it's it's a kind of a controlled scary, where you're like, right. You could see how the 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 act the like the the other character would be nervous and uncomfortable, but like it never gets so far that they would like run away. Whereas right. you can definitely imagine a version of this movie or a version of the story where the that act, the actor lets it go too far, and it it gets too wild, too violent, and it becomes too scary. Um, absolutely yeah and you know again talking about these playwrights being vets themselves you know it gets into it in this one with um mountain himself is not a vet but uh the lady at the unemployment office um grace you know she talks about him in context of other people she has worked with who were vets with ptsd right or or uh grievous injuries um right but she's very quick you know he's when he when he's then down on himself it's like oh you're calling me crippled then she's like no 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 that's not what i mean and you know she is there wasn't the language in 1956 to talk about those invisible disabilities right really right uh i mean they so they were tr- there was a very a very haphazard very <laughs> still developing right. language to, to to try to right. deal with that stuff yeah. yeah and and we are we are in the realm of that haphazard developing language but the fact that it it even motions in that direction is very very impressive and very good to me um well, and and I think it's worth acknowledging that um, her, you know, she the 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 actress playing Grace, and then like also the character, 
makes a real good balance with it's a very it's well cast and very well like she provides a very specific, very good counterpoint to his actions and she's very believable in like in that role um right that that sort of like i want like trying to sort of muddle through that language and try to like get through the idea of like i want to help you but like also like we, we we don't really have good a good system for this right now kind of thing um right right and she does a very important yeah. has a very important role to a certain extent in that she she exposes to the audience clarifies the analogy here in many ways right like she by talking about that she makes explicit what the analogy of the movie is anyway right like in many ways is it's very clearly the movie is meant to talk about veterans issues without necessarily talking about veterans issues and she she kind of like lays it out on the table for the audience to be like in case you haven't gotten it up until now we're talking about an entire segment of our population that is right right suffering yeah we're not we're not just talking about boxers (laughs) And Xboxers, right? We're talking and, about and and we what, what movie was people it? People who have we, gone through trauma. Yeah, we what, best what years movie of our did, lives. Yeah, best years of our lives. We talked in the that movie when we were talking about it how extraordinary it is to actually address those issues head on. Yeah, and and you see here that like it's a an important enough topic that like many parts of society want to talk about this issue, but like you're going to put it on national TV, you're probably not going to make a movie that directly accuses the United States government of doing a shitty job of taking care of veterans. Well, you you 100% <laughs> couldn't say that. Right, that's, that's uh, what I'm saying. into yeah, the 50s yeah. because right, then exactly. you would just be blacklisted as a communist. Right. Uh, so this is what you do, right? You make you make analogous stories and then you make it very clear to your audience that like, hey, this is the closest I can get to talking about this thing. Right. Um, and she and that and and beyond being very good in this role, that character has that that functional purpose of making us understand that and and represents a sort of people who want to try to help deal with these problems. Um, it's worth noting she Kim Hunter goes on to be in just so much shit. Like oh my yeah. god. Well, a lot of a lot of things we things we have watched. Yeah, she's uh, in the swimmer. Yeah, she's as in one the of swimmer. the neighbors. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which we did for a, a bonus episode, actually. Was that a bonus episode? Movie. I've completely it was, lost track. I no yeah, longer remember what's what anymore. It was the swimmer is an interesting one because it's frequently on the Criterion Channel, but it's not actually in the Criterion Collection, right? Uh, but yeah, you know, this one just adding to the fact that this is probably even at, at the time this was one of the most star-studded ones of what we're watching. You know, she was Stella in Streetcar Named Desire. Yeah, I mean, yeah, this, yeah, exactly. Right? You know? yeah. Um. But she was also, uh, oh goodness, I can't remember her name. Uh, but she was the the female doctor in Planet of the Apes. Oh right, yeah, yeah, was, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, obviously, you wouldn't recognize her there, right? But, yeah, uh, of course, yeah. But but yeah, um, and obviously that was after this. But you know, she'd been. Yeah, working. I saw that she's in she's in the whole Planet of the Apes series. Yeah, because that that yeah. doctor reappears over and over yeah. again. Yeah, uh, but she was you know she'd been working for over a decade by the time this this came out yeah in both um, movie and tv because like uh yeah. she's got quite a i was just i don't i'm not familiar that familiar with her uh filmography and almost and certainly like going and looking it's like wow 
Like that's a, that's yeah. a lot. Oh my god! Well, her, just, her film goes on. Her TV goes on. It's so much. I. It's always yeah, she, whenever you go and look at TV actors like history, it's always like, oh my right, right. There's a lot of TV. There's a lot of hours to fill. Boy, there's a lot of TV out there. Yeah. It's After this lot. one, she also became a regular on Playhouse 90. She's in seven other Playhouse 90s, wow. including the comedian that we'll we'll watch next week. Oh, okay. Uh, I forget where I ran across it, but there was some like a British review of this that was complaining about shoehorning a love story into this story of manliness. That I felt was I mean, one of it's the like dumbest reviews really I've read in a while. Yeah, it's, no, it's, 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 it's not. It's it's really it's really fascinating, like because like it's it's so. I don't. Know, I think it's it, it is very well crafted in the sense that yeah. like there's a lot of good counterbalancing between the characters and like. There, the story of those two together is really quite the opposite, right? It is nice to see in any form, especially I feel like, especially now, like that you can have a male and female lead who aren't explicitly in a loving, like a love relationship, right? Like it's just like she's worried about him, she cares about him. Yeah, well, she wants to I help mean- him. Mountain talks about it being a date, and she doesn't like react negatively to that. She wants right. him to come back, but it's it is it is unlike what we saw with a win from the south. This is a natural progression for what might right, be that's a relationship what I mean. it's like, in the future. <laughs> um, and, and the movie doesn't tell us that like it doesn't try to like it's quite the opposite of shoehorning it in, right? Like right. two people, they clearly have some sort of like connection, but like. Let's not jump ahead of ourselves, kind of sort of situation, right? Like it, it's um, I like it. I think it's it's good. I I like it when movies try to and stories try to play a little bit more naturally with that kind of stuff, and not like ah, the person who's been staying at your house for a week is someone you're desperately in love with now, and uh, right, that sort of right, stuff, right? Like right, they just right, met, right. and like she, and she also a lot of what she's feeling comes from sympathy, and like you can see that, right? Like yeah, she cares, yeah, but it, she yeah, wants to help him. She, she is obviously not doing this for everyone who comes through the office either, right? She may she is making it a no, point to encounter that's him. That's true. That's true. Right. Yeah. You know, that's true. She I am all I mean to say is while you are right to say that they are not in an overt loving relationship and it's great that they are not married at the end. They're not even in the same city at the end. He has plans to go back to see her and he is very happy that he has her number in his pocket. Right, but, uh, but at the same time, they're obviously being written as coming together. So yeah, I mean they I, they don't they don't take it very far. Is my point in the show? Yeah, and I like that uh, because it right. doesn't distract from the story. Uh, whereas, Absolutely. like if if it was if it was wedding bells at the end of this movie, it would be like, what the fuck's happening here? Uh, right. So right. Right. One hundred percent. With bang the drum slowly. You know, the transitions were Paul Newman walking in spot while they changed things out behind him, and also he walked to the other side of the set, right? And it was pretty minimalist, so, you know, the same desk that's in his hotel room for the first scene is the table in their house, right? right? For for scene three, right? And and the other scenes all take place in the... In the uh, it benefits from the fact that the yeah, locker the room. locker room. It benefits also so. from the fact that like all hotel rooms look exactly the same, right? Uh, right, 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 right. So it doesn't really matter. You don't of have to course. set dress them that much, 
Right. Um, so, you know, and it's easy for the hotel room to become the the house. Yeah, you, you just know, you just take a hotel room and like, actually make it look just, nice and like a yeah. place where people might want to live and suddenly right. right. Yeah. Whereas this one has like actual sets. This one yeah, I this am one has set bewildered sets. that it could have been done live. Uh <laughs> you know, we have an actual car drive through the set in this Yeah, one, no, it's right? wild. Like I mean this this one has like it has a lot of them too. Like Yeah. Like we get we get that like kind of like locker room. We get right outside the lock you know, we we go a yeah. lot of places. Um, right. And and so you uh, can do it relatively quickly. We don't we don't like what I mean is it's like the other ones very clearly like, oh, there's an act slash commercial break here and we're gonna like break it off where it's like each thing takes place in one location, whereas like this one is much more much yeah. more active. Yeah, the an interesting aspect of the BBC adapt, adaptation of this is that the BBC does not have commercial breaks, so they had to add filler scenes for some of the set changes and costume changes for the main story, uh, with with other characters. Just Irish dancers, doing, yeah, just no, brought in the Irish dancers. <laughs> just bring in the Irish dancers. Uh, they worked so they worked so well on U.S. Steel the other year. We'll, uh, we'll it's just the same kids. Here. They just keep getting older. Yeah. Yes. Uh, <laughs> there's, those outfits don't fit so good anymore. Right, right. Uh, yeah. Um, but, like, this one, truly cinematic in some of the ways yeah. that these were set up. Like, the the scene where, uh, toward the end, where she comes and knocks on the window while he's sitting in the bar. Right, and he yeah. goes out. Yeah. He goes out to talk to her, and we see that conversation through the window, but we're still hearing the bar conversation. And then right. after she walks away... And I'm mentally begging him to go after her. We switch to the outside and actually, you know, get the shot of her walking away, and then she decides to go back. Right, right which is a which is legit amazing because think about this is like that's not like that's a whole different set than the other bar set. Like I mean, there's like it's like that's not you know I mean there's a lot of sets right like that's there's a right. lot of stuff going on here, and that had to be a really complicated one because you got the inside and the outside. There's a lot of really neat stuff going on here. And what I wonder about, I'm what I'm curious about, and I'll probably never get a real satisfying answer about, is is this one abnormal? Or are they get, are their techniques just progressing and advancing and becoming better right. at this well, rate? You know what I mean? You know what I mean though, right? Like because you're, you're still relatively early days and like if you're doing this kind of bright kind of like film production live, every well, I mean, how often are they doing it? They're doing it quite a bit, right? right? Like it's not every week, but I don't think, but like it, a lot of them were weekly shows, for right? And years, so, like, if you're right? if you're doing that, you, you, I wonder if if what we're seeing here, why would this one be so much more special? Uh, this doesn't make any sense. What I wonder is if they're just getting progressively better and better at doing this yeah. at that kind of clip. It's like, yeah, yeah well, every two years, it's turning over in terms of like evolution of skill and capabilities, like how good we yeah. are at doing this. Well, we're talking about at least every channel has their own, right? So right. at least three. Right. Probably more than three, because I think we even have at least four just in what's represented in the, in the films we're watching. Right. And we're watching eight episodes of shows that did, uh, you know, maybe at least a dozen, possibly upwards of 50 over the course of their lives, right? Uh, 
like even just Playhouse 90 has, let's see this, has four seasons with like 20 episodes a piece. And keep in so, mind, each channel doesn't only have one of these necessarily. Like there's right, the Ford right. Theater Hour, the General Electric yeah. Theater, the United States Steel Hour, the Kaiser Aluminum. Like some of those follow each other in time and space and some of them are simultaneous. Like, well, this is on this day at this time. And this is on this day at this time, right? Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of TV to fill. It turns out, yeah. Um, yeah. No, what I'm saying even is, even when you're not broadcasting after 10 p.m., there's a lot of TV. Yeah, to still, fill. still a lot of time. Yeah, I mean, what what I mean in many ways is that, like, and keep in mind that, like, people who work on one go between them and like get quit that job and go work over here. What I'm saying is that is is the institutional knowledge of doing this progressing so fast. That between 1950 whatever three or something and 1956, we're seeing radically more capability in what they can accomplish live. The same thing like radio did, yeah. right? Like radio performances became well, think- progressively more and more complicated and interesting as time went on, as they got better and better at doing it, right? Yeah. Ultimately, we are seeing a pretty small sample size, right. but even from what we're seeing, these shows were already happening for at least five years prior, dude. General Electric Theater Hour had 302 episodes. Yeah. Yeah. And 10 you years. Know, that means they're doing 30 a year. They're taking And think about think about you know th- th- it's months, likely it's likely that a lot of the same crew at least was mm-hmm. working every single one of those. Right. And and if they're not so there's they're there's certainly a lot of a ton of bleed over between different like right. you know different studios maybe are separate but you know somebody will leave one st- one place get yeah. a job over at another place so just, yeah so yeah just absolutely people are boiling down and and knowing what works and learning what works and challenging themselves artistically because right. they're also doing the same thing over and over again so you know they're going to want to do something different right, right. well and they and yeah. you can put when like as you get more technically skilled and things like that you can, like the sort of breadth of what you can imagine doing gets bigger right and we see that with other art too. It's not just this. This one's just fascinating because when you're doing that much practice that often, that like you know, you can see like skill maybe turning over faster than it would in yeah. other environments where like there's a fairly good big lead time in between production. You know what I mean? Like movies obviously progress at a good clip too, but because there's a lot more. It's movies aren't three hundred and two in a row. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they they work right, differently. Right. So like that that's a little bit harder to just see straight through. Whereas this like feels like that's what's happening. Um, it's uh, it's it's really impressive. I I kind of yeah. wish our sample size was bigger. In hides, I mean, obviously we couldn't handle much more than this, but like, you know, it would be neat because like when you think about the fact that like something like General Electric Theater had three hundred and two episodes and we're gonna you know, yeah. we're watching like one was, episode of one thing. It's like whew, right. like what were those? Yeah. What was what was the other three hundred and one? You know what I mean? We happy we happen to be a little US Steel hour heavy in this right. set too, but US Steel Hour was uh two hundred and fifty one episodes across ten seasons. Exactly. Uh it started in October fifty three was the first. Um, yeah, and obviously, you know, these weren't even these weren't the first shows to be doing this sort of thing. No, too, I mean, it right? looks like late. No, I mean, and and that makes sense because we've talked about those as film as well. Like the go to right when you're like, well, I got a lot of time to fill is like 
well, like we got a camera, we've got plays. You know right. what I mean? Like that 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 could, they clearly reached that conclusion quite quickly. In fact, it appears that they reached that conclusion in like 1948. Like they're like, <laughs> right, oh right, shit! Right, like right, right, right. we got time to fill. There, are, you know, we will start essentially treating it like a playhouse that never closes or doesn't close until 10 p.m. Right, right. Yeah, like the Philco Television Playhouse, 251 episodes, started in 1948. And what are those early episodes? Are they all? Uh... And this, I'm just pulling from Kim Hunter's filmography. Right, right. I don't right. know just what exists before 1948. One. I'm just saying that yeah. she was doing this from 1948. Uh, right. Well, we will. I believe we'll watch one from Philco, but I can't remember which it is. Uh, I but, mean, there's uh, a ton of them. I mean, there's yeah. There's it's it is as far as I can tell. It runs October 3rd straight through to like. Yeah, I mean they're 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 taking breaks, but they seem to be basically taking a week off a month, right? Sometimes or like they're every week basically. It's it's wild. I don't I don't know how that I don't know how you survive this. <laughs> like this is oh uh, I I don't know. <laughs> this would kill you. I don't know how you would do this. Like this is crazy. Like it's every week, just straight through, nonstop. It's crazy. I don't taking Christmas off basically. Here's a here's a fun one nope, for you. No, it turns out not taking Christmas off. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Um episode 2 of the first season of Philco. Yeah. Uh, was an adaptation of Rebecca, the Hitchcock <laughs> film. <laughs> yeah. Uh So you know, even they were experimenting early, but Right, and know. that's what I'm saying is that like is that if you imagine this many people doing this thing this often, this much, like Multiple people on mul- like multiple channels doing multiple versions of this every week. You just got to be getting s- everybody's just got to the institutional knowledge just has to be building up super quickly. Like right, right. So right. like within six years, you're driving cars around on giant like on these really complicated sets, right? Right. It's it's wild. I it's yeah, it makes sense. Stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. Philco in its first season did do some some seemingly modern original work but also did uh christmas carol Macbeth. uh of course of course like play the hits right yeah, like, 12, I mean, why not? 12th night uh pride and prejudice siriano de bergiac uh yeah they they do a lot of camille they did uh i bet i bet that is probably one of the most boring versions of camille to be honest uh, well, I, I mean, a imagine. lot of the a lot of these you have to wonder, right? Like, what what right. is a one hour version of Macbeth? What's a one hour version of Romeo right, and Juliet? Like, right. What yeah, are those? Like, what could those possibly that's be? Aspect. Yeah. Like, yeah, that that is like child school play level of like, it, it sound, you, you would imagine, right? But they obviously like people watched it. Obviously, like this is very successful system that they had going on here. Because every single one of these are like five hundred episodes, you know, three hundred episodes and ten seasons. You know, it's like wow. I mean, this was clearly a successful way yeah. of doing things. Just so, even among the ones on this disc, but certainly looking at the other ones, we'll watch. Uh, why, why, wind from the south? 
Like it's it seems like such an outlier. It does. Certainly there well, were certainly more than there were more than eight of these saved. So Yeah, why, so why did the programmers one? of the P, of the PBS I, one choose it, a win from the South? Is it like just Murphy? Is that what the deal is? Is that just the maybe. the Was novelty of that is just so interesting to them? Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. I, it's just you know not you to, have to, not wonder, to right? downplay not to downplay the talent of anyone involved with that. But but it is it's, noticeably less dramatic and interesting than yeah. and being the drum solo or requiem. And of the ones that Constigan wrote, it's it's one of the few of these that Constantine wrote that didn't win an Emmy, right? So, like, right. yeah, I just don't know. I don't know why that one ends up here. It just... I wonder if there is a, like, a technical reason or, like, one of the easier ones to save or something like that in terms of, like, quality, like, maybe exit quality or something. Like, they found a bunch of them, right? But, like, how many of them were, like, truly salvageable? You know what I mean? Like, were of qual- uh, good enough quality that they could be, like, restored. Given how much existed within the system producing these. Right. Uh, there were obviously more bangers than just the ones we're seeing for this set as well. Right. right. Yes. So, so you know, it it happens that of the eight we have, six or seven of them were uh, critically acclaimed and one wasn't, uh, but was from a guy who did other critically acclaimed stuff. Right. And maybe the other critically acclaimed stuff from these episodes really is gone. Uh, you know? Well, you have to wonder, right? Like, or some I mean, of it, know, at least. Yeah. And then, I mean, and like, again, the actors in Win for the South, like Julie Harris is not like, I mean, to a certain extent, it might partially just be like, "Well, this is a very famous actress." Like, we're you know, well, she, like, she does she does seem to have been very very famous at the time, right? That's she what was, I mean. That's what I mean. And I yeah, I wonder if the there's like sort of a, in Broadway. I wonder if there's so, a goal there of like, well, you know, we that sort of like yeah preservation or, type of thing that they like right. to do. If we if we had that knowledge of mid century. Theater. Right, like I'm not saying would that be, I'm, would we be I'm, super I'm, duper impressed by that one, right? And just yeah. And so maybe if you're if you're a big fan of that kind of thing, where you're like, oh yeah, this name is worth putting in here, even if this is not the best demonstration of work. Yeah, while while many of the others I don't know we will see <laughs> are also uh, people who went on to be, you know, voices of the generation director wise. Uh, well, I guess, okay, Daniel Petrie has some some well-known work, I guess. He did direct the 61 A Raisin in the Sun. Uh, so, you know, he's not it's not bad, but uh But yeah, I just don't he's not a name that I generally right recognize either, right? You know, not that I know everyone in this category, and certainly, you know, before starting this whole Lost in Criterion project, there were a lot more people of this era uh, who I didn't know. Right, um, yeah. But Petri doesn't doesn't even seem to be that big. Like, we're going to have ones from John Frankenheimer, right? <laughs> right, names, I mean, Names yeah. are really recognized, right? <laughs> I mean, with this, we get the, we get fascinatingly enough 
the same inscrutable nature that we get with the Criterion Collection as a right, whole, right, which is right, like right, it's right, hard right, to know right. why things happen. I imagine, I bet there are, there's a combination of like this is a time capsule of very specific set of people who are famous from this era, combined with like what is or is not salvageable. Um, yeah, you know, it, it's probably a whole like. You know, this one's in really good qual- shape. The other ones are in rough shape. So we'll go with the one that's in good shape, even if it's not the best representation of, like, the form or something like that. Um, yeah. Because, I mean, they're picking eight out of, yeah, thousands. <laughs> right. Like, right. probably, you know, it's it's like, I mean, yeah. And it's the same problem we have with it. It's the same question we always have with the Criterion Collection as a whole, which is, like, why did you pick this? Like, what? compelled you to pick this out of millions of movies that exist in the world why this one um so yeah yeah petri's career is interesting he ends up doing a lot of tv movies uh moving into the 60s or 70s 80s and 90s uh had a brief time in the 60s where he was occasionally actually doing non-tv work uh but still that's his bread and butter mostly uh and then at this time in the 50s he directed for uh, like literally every single show we've mentioned so far right well see there you <laughs> and, go he's, he's and a, a whole bunch right? that we didn't right and so you get into those kind of considerations too where it's like a person you and i have basically never heard of is a staple of making this kind of work right like that sort right. of stuff right yeah whereas you know even ralph nelson is not necessarily a name we we super recognize but we've seen a movie from ralph nelson he directed lilies of the field which was a bonus episode a few months ago right uh sydney portier movie of of course you know the only movie we've written, <laughs> mentioned from daniel, <laughs> daniel petrie was also a sydney portier movie but right. uh, but um we've seen work from ralph nelson we've never seen anything else from dan petrie so yeah uh well, and this is yeah. also special in that this this is TV and like Criterion Collection very rarely, only very rarely intersects with TV in a lot of ways, right? Like, right. There's a certain fascinatingness about this that like a lot of this does directly intersect with film in a way that we very rarely experience. Um, you know, like we when we go and look at the filmographies of a lot of the people we watch on these. In, in the Criterion Collection, we very rarely encounter TV, and when we do, it's oftentimes like something we've never heard of or something like that, whereas this provides an interesting insight in the opposite direction where it's like, well, there's a lot of people who go on to make a lot of a lot of film after this and a lot of things right. that we will, we either have seen in our private life or in our in our uh, through the podcast, sure. and that, that's fascinating by itself, I think. I mean, I was not yeah. expecting to watch Paul Newman when I opened up the, like, this box set that we were going to watch. You know what I mean? Like that was, I did not expect to see Paul Newman. I did not accept to expect to see Jack Palance. I did not expect to see these things right. when he started this. I was kind of, that was kind of shocking in and of itself. Right. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, uh, Ralph Nelson, who directed Requiem for a, for a heavyweight here also directed the full length film version of Requiem well, for a heavyweight. Uh, yeah. Um, among his other work. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I think, I think even with just these three episodes, if we can pull it, if there's enough of them to do, I think a, a bonus episode of walking watching one of the, one of the feature lengths. Of it one would of be these neat. Is a fantastic I think it idea. would be, I think it's a neat idea. 
Yeah. Especially since we will we we will get to do a thing we don't very often get to do, which is do direct counterpoint, where it's like, well, this and this, how are they the same? How are they different? Right, 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 right. It's a thing we don't yeah. get to do very often. So, but you are you are right. You know, it's it's interesting. You know, the Criterion Collection in popular consciousness is about film, right? Right. So it's you know, we end up having this conversation every time we watch something from television about what about this television show made it something Criterion wanted us to yeah, see. Yeah, it, it, it happens rarely and enough that it's, it, so, it's always a point of conversation. Yeah. Like, I mean, our first TV show was Fishing with John, right? And well, just, Fishing with John is just such a, it's is its own weird cultural artifact yeah, that exists. Right. Like, you it's almost don't have to, you don't have to ask that question with Fishing with John. Like, it's right. just, it's self-evident it in many ways. Yeah. I'm so happy that Criterion decided to put it out. But Fishing with John is such, like, an, avant-garde outsider art fishing show just the fact that that's the easiest way to describe it right yeah, means yeah, yeah it's totally. something that needs to be seen right and, and, uh, and it feels it, in many ways sets a tone for the criterion collection that that criterion collection doesn't always hold up to but it's like right. well this is a place where you can watch weird avant-garde stuff that you probably <laughs> never would be able to watch if we didn't release it. Like you're just there's zero chance you would ever see this. And uh what we do? Tanner 88 the the right. <laughs> yep which I didn't really need to see but okay thanks. Uh But I get um, I but it it's yeah. understandable why they did it. Like I right. understand. Discounting uh some of the Bergman stuff, we watched miniseries versions right, or television right. series versions of Bergman. Uh, Berlin, Berlin Alexander plots, uh, which was crazy to be a TV show, period. Yeah, when, when you watch it, you're like, wait, why, why is this a TV show? But like, yeah. Like, 13, 13 episodes that are all 90 minutes long. Uh, it's a it's a film anthology is what it is. Yeah, or it really omnibus, is. Omnibus, not, not an anthology even. Yeah. Uh, because they're all the same story. But yeah. Um yeah, so TV in the Criterion Collection is is weird. Yes. Uh and these are, you know, being filmed plays to varying degrees, even within the three that we're talking about this week. Um from something that could very easily just be a stage show. Uh and certainly, to bang a drum slowly is is more is, is set up modern a, theater, yes, but, but it's set it up like a stage show. And then uh, Requiem for a Heavyweight would then, be hard to do on stage, you, <laughs> right? Right. You'd have right, it would right. have to make compromises, yeah. I think. Right. Yeah. Um, well, I I, I yeah, think it's just I I think it, it, there's a couple of things that you have to keep in mind. I think I think number one, Criterion Collection to a certain extent is opportunistic, and it's like, well, if a thing shows up that we can put out, that right, we think we'll, right, we'll right, sell, right. that people will watch, we'll do it. PBS made this, and it's clear that like PBS had it laying around, and someone said to someone, "Hey, you know what? We could buy, right? Like, right, you right. know what? Well, we could get the rights to real easy and put out." And has really famous actors in it that like people yeah. will recognize from like later on in their life, and is kind of a weird, interesting historical artifact that we could just well, put out for probably not very much money. Another, another aspect of of this being television from the fifties is it's also the same mental space for Criterion's decision makers as those weird 60 sci- 60 sci-fi movies we've watched. Absolutely. 
It's just the stuff they they watched as a kid that they weren't able to ever see again. Right. So it's a, they they see an opportunity to archive something they watched as a child or as a young man or woman, and like that they kind of assumed was gone forever. They can get it, and it probably costs almost nothing to get. Right. All right, that right, right, all right. that sixties sci fi is the same way, right? Like it's pennies probably to like to get the rights for it, right? And like. And sometimes it features really weird, goofy stuff that you're like, well, who else is going to put out this thing? Yeah. Like, no one's ever yeah. going to see it again if we don't do it, right? And there's a – the Criterion Collection, I think, to a certain extent, has a sort of, like, that kind of, like, weird film collector's mentality in that way, right? That, like, we – you know, I'm guilty of, too, where it's like, well, if I don't get this now and buy this thing, like, it could just disappear. It'll just be gone. Like – there's a certain sort of like feeling like, well, like maybe somebody needs to, to, to have it. Like it needs to still exist, right? Um, archivists are weird that way, right? Um, right, right, right. And right. and like something like this, like PBS has already done most of the work for you. They've made the thing, but PBS will probably also lose it eventually. Yeah. Like you're you're it's a thing that was that is even it's a it's like a double artifact because like PBS went and dug up all this stuff remade it for tv but in an era when also there wasn't like home releases of tv stuff so like right. pbs's version of it would also in theory just disappear again so like you kind of criterion collections almost doing a double sort of archival thing where it's like well we we're archiving both this thing from the 50s but we're also archiving this thing from public television that is by the time this is released rapidly disappearing right like Public television has lost a lot of the cachet and, and mental space that, like, would make people think, like, oh, that's worth preserving, right? It, it, it's, um, I can say, I can, I can absolutely understand why, why they would do it. It's just, and again, it features a lot of very famous actors, a lot of, right, right, like, right. important directors and stuff that, like, in a role that you never, like, I didn't know Paul Newman did TV. Yeah. Like, I had no idea. Um, you put a couple of those faces on the cover of that box and you're just going to sell it. Like just a bunch of people at Walmart <laughs> are going to be like, yeah, I mean, sure. The grand total of it, total of it is, is a very interesting archival project that I say, I would say at most so far from what we've seen suffers mainly just from the fact that like it's breadth is not that wide, right? Like it's very, these are three episodes. We're only going to watch eight. We've watched. Yeah. We in theory we have already watched three more, um, and people get to this one, but like that's not a lot. So that's right. And so far, I've been pretty uh, impressed. <laughs> I've been really. It's been interesting. Next week, we will finish up this box set with the comedian, also written by Rod Sterling, uh, and starring Mickey Rooney, and Days of Wine and Roses. Uh, written by uh, J.P. Miller and directed by, uh, I believe that one's Frankenheimer. Um, so look forward to that and finishing up this box set. And next week, I think we'll, we might, since it's only two movies, we might have to dedicate some time to having a conversation about the uh, the weird space these exist in as direct corporate branded material uh, right? yeah if we have a, yeah. it, it's definitely so, we didn't get into it this time i don't think we'll get into yeah. it we didn't i don't think we will have gotten into it last week <laughs> yes right the, the united steel hour is a is a yes. or the united the u.s steel hour is a weird 
it is an interesting that itself is an interesting cultural artifact that like <laughs> right. branding in that way, right? Right, right. At whatever but, company presents whatever, right? But that is a conversation for next week, I think. This week, uh, it was the middle set, disc two of the golden age of television box set with Bang the Drum Slowly, A Wind from the South, and Requiem for a Heavyweight. Uh, yeah, uh, just an interesting s- set of examples of what this box set can be. And yeah. I look forward to uh, to seeing other examples of what it is. Uh, so thank you so much for listening to Lost in Criterion. I'm, as always, the Adam Glass. With me, as always, John Patrick Oatari Dorgan. And we'll see you next week. in Criterion. I'm your co-host Adam Glass. You can find me on Twitter at the Adam Glass. My partner is John Patrick Oatari Dorgan, and you can find him at J Patrick Dorgan. Check out more of the show at LostInCriterion.com, or hey, give us a review on iTunes. It's nice. If you really like what you hear, consider supporting us at Patreon.com/LostInCriterion. Hey, our theme music is by Jonathan Hape. Check him out at JonathanHape.com. And thanks for listening. We appreciate it.